Good morning. This is what Matthew 5, 27 to 32 says. It says, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body would be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who commits a or who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) Say a quick prayer for me. Really, I want to to lay some foundations here before we get started this morning. The first of those foundations is that I did not intentionally plan this message for Valentine's Day. Uh, It's just where we landed in the series. And if I'm being totally candid and honest with you, there are a lot of passages in Scripture that I think most pastors and teachers would prefer not to have to address at all in any capacity, and this is probably pretty high on the list. But we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the great things about working through a passage of uh, an extended passage of Scripture or a book of the Bible is that it brings us to these kinds of passages, and it forces the person up front, to address all of what God's Word says on various topics, and this is one of those topics that we need to address. And so we're going to. The second is this. It is that this topic affects everyone. Even if we were to to push to the side the issue of sexual immorality and lust and, and those types of things, and we just talked about divorce, statistically that would likely bump into almost every person's life in this room in some capacity, whether or not that's your parents or a grandparent or a brother or a sister or a cousin or a friend or whatever the case might be. Divorce and its effects have, have rippled their way through virtually all of society. And I understand that. And I want to be sensitive to that this morning. But I also want to be faithful to what the text said. The third foundation I want to lay this morning is that on this day, Valentine's Day, more so than maybe any other day of the year, I think it becomes very, very apparent that Satan has gotten us to worship and idolize a cheap version of love. There's nothing wrong with romantic love. Please don't hear me say that. But what our society worships is what love does for me. What does love get me to feel? What does love bring into my life? And that is actually not at all what the Bible paints about love. You see, in the Bible, love is all about what can I give to someone. And so on this day, Valentine's Day, when love is all about warm and fuzzy feelings and what is that like, inside of me and who brings that into my life, we get a better image maybe than any other time of the year that we really do worship and idolize love, romantic love in a cheap sense when we should be worshiping and idolizing and giving our lives to the personification of love who is the person of Jesus Christ. 
The fourth foundation I want to lay this morning is that when it comes to issues of marriage and divorce and sex, it's really, really easy for us to get stuck on our past failures. There's often a sense of guilt and shame that comes with these topics. And again, Satan often convinces us to kind of lug those around like these heavy chains that we cannot ever escape. The goal today certainly is not to cause anyone any undue pain for anything they may have experienced in their past or may be going through right now. To a degree, I'm actually a little bit encouraged to stand here today on Valentine's Day and teach through this passage, and here's why. It's because Jesus did not say these words to hurt us. He did not say these words to wound us or to harm us. He said them for his glory. And he said them for our good. Adultery is not an unforgivable sin. Divorce is not an unforgivable act. Paul David Tripp says it this way. None of us has walked through life with unblemished nobility. All of what I look back on and would like to redo has been fully covered by the blood of Jesus. I no longer need to carry the burden of the past on my shoulders, so I am free to fully give myself to what God has called me to going forward. If you're here this morning and you have the marks of sexual immorality or the mark of divorce in your past, I want to to remind you maybe more firmly than anything else I'm going to say the rest of the morning that that is not unforgivable. That is not unforgivable. Jesus paid the price for all of our sin, whether it be sexual in nature or something else. And when we put our faith in him, what he asks of us is that we cling to him going forward. And if we're the the picture of, of a person whose heart and attitude is that that's modeled in the Beatitudes, then what he is asking for us is that we approach him in that way in all things going forward. And so that will include what your marriage and what your sexuality look like going forward. The last foundation I want to lay is this. I don't stand up here and speak this morning from a place of like marital superiority. Melody and I have been married for six and a half years. It's far from perfect. We're both sinful, broken human beings who are trying to figure out how it is that two sinful, broken people live in such close and intimate proximity with each other without constantly hurting and wounding each other. I don't stand up here and speak from a place of superiority. Instead, my my heart's desire is to stand up here and to speak from a place of biblical authority. I want to just rest very heavy on what the Bible has to say on these issues. So with those five things in mind, let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive in. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you that you don't leave us in the dark in terms of how it is that we are to relate to members of the opposite sex. God, instead, you lay out very clearly for us what those relationships should look like, how they should function, how we should conduct ourselves, what the state of our hearts should be in relation to them. God, thank you that 
failures in these areas are not unforgivable sins, but instead we can say honestly and truthfully there is hope in the promise of the cross. You gave everything to save the world you love. And that hope is an anchor for our souls. God, as we work our way through this passage, would you make that very real, very dear, very clear to us this morning? God, would you unfold for us what the heart of a follower of Jesus should long for when it comes to marriage and sexual purity? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me catch us up really quickly. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're, we're midway through chapter 5 here, the first of three chapters that encompass and encapsulate the Sermon on the Mount. The first 16 verses were all about revealing the heart of a disciple. That's The disciples is who Jesus delivers this sermon to. It's about a character to be developed within followers of Jesus. More than anything else, that character is founded upon humility. That's what the Beatitudes are all about. And because of that humble nature before the Lord, a follower of Christ is salt and is light in a dark and and broken world. Verses 17 to 20 provided a transition for us from revealing the heart of a disciple to revealing the heart of a disciple's character. How does... How does the the life of a a follower of Jesus look? And Jesus addresses that he's not lawless, nor is he legalistic. He's right down the middle. That the answer really is Jesus. He's fulfilled all of the law on our behalf, and in our new nature as a follower of him, we should long to lean into him, and our lives should begin to look like him. And now we're in this six-piece section where Jesus continually displays to the Pharisees that the heart of the Father is greater than the letter of the law. Last week, T.A. did a great job of unpacking the first of these six illustrations when he, he looked at anger. And what we saw is that the letter of the law says, do not murder, but the heart of the Father, it says, I want you at peace. I want your heart to have peace. And that brings us to today's Six verses, which really encompass the next two illustrations, lust and divorce, adultery and divorce. And so here's what we're going to see this morning. The letter of the law says do not commit adultery, but the heart of the Father says be perfectly pure. As with the previous passage on murder, Jesus is making it clear that he's most concerned with an inner condition of the heart of his followers. He doesn't just prescribe things about their external behaviors or their outward deeds. He doesn't just prohibit what it is that followers of his are supposed to do. Instead, he's very, very concerned with the inner heart condition of his followers. And so we have to remember a couple of important things at this juncture. We need to remember the difference between sin and sins. When a pastor stands up in front of a church and he talks about sin, we usually, typically, jump to thoughts of behaviors. Lying, stealing, killing. Those are sins. What the Bible talks about when it talks about sin is something different. You see, the Bible talks about sin as a disease. And what we think of as sins are typically symptoms. 
Sin is a condition. It affects everything about who you are. It's not merely a matter of actions and deeds, but a condition of the human heart that leads to actions and deeds. And the thing is, Jesus did not come and live the life that he lived and died the death that he died in order to just fix the symptoms. Jesus came to eradicate the disease. If you have a child and they've ever had chicken pox, or you can think back to when you had chicken pox, think about the itchy little sores that pop up all over your body. As a parent, you long for those sores to be gone because they are tormenting your child. But in order to fix them, you don't just throw a little anti-itch cream on the surface. No, you try to take care of the root of the problem, of what is causing the sores, what's creating the symptoms. You long to eradicate the disease from their body so that the symptoms relieve themselves. That's what Christ has done for us. He doesn't just come and and say, fix the symptoms. That's the Pharisees. Follow the law. Figure it out. Fix all the outside problems. Jesus comes and he says, no, I want to eradicate the disease. I went to the cross. I died that death to get rid of the disease. And the symptoms will begin to take care of themselves. And that disease lives in your heart. That's why Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount talking about the heart of a follower. When you place your faith in Christ and his work on the cross on your behalf, he goes to war against the disease of sin in your heart. His death on the cross has paid the price for you. His death on the cross has made you clean before the Lord. But that doesn't mean that all of the sin disease is gone from your heart. No, the Holy Spirit comes into you and goes to war against that. Jesus doesn't just leave you as he finds you. He doesn't just cover your sin and then say, that's good. No, it's like the woman at the well. He says, go and sin no more. He goes to war against the sin in your life. The Holy Spirit takes up that battle inside of you. And throughout all the examples that Jesus gives here, these six things that come at the end of chapter five, we ought to see that the disease of sin runs very deep in our hearts and in our lives. And furthermore, each of these sections of the Sermon on the Mount should drive us back to the Lord on our knees in a position of humility as displayed in the Beatitudes. So here's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see that the disease of sin has just totally broken our interactions with the opposite sex. And so as we move on here and we begin to look at adultery, let me make the first observation, and it's this, that our sinful human nature longs to stay in the midst of sexual immorality. Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says the problem isn't just the act of adultery. We get it. We understand that if you're married and you have sex with someone who's not your spouse, that something has gone wrong there. We understand that. Jesus says the problem of adultery lives not only in our actions, it lives in our hearts. For those listening at the time, the the context here, adultery was viewed in a very, very 
specific, particular light. Adultery was only really constituted in the act of a married man having sex outside of his marriage with a married woman. It was very normal at that time for men in a marriage to have sex outside the boundaries of their marriage. But so long as that took place with a woman who wasn't also married, then it wasn't viewed as a big deal. And when and if that took place, the Old Testament law made it very clear what was to happen. You can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 22 if you want to like make a little note of that. If you were caught in adultery, you were put to death. That was the penalty. Jesus just totally blows the doors off of that way of thinking. And he says, if you so much as look at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery. At that moment... Everyone sitting there listening and everyone sitting in any room reading this passage of scripture ought to realize, well, I deserve to be dead. I can stand up here and confidently tell you that based on 30 years of my life to this point, if this is what adultery means and that's the penalty for it, I deserve to be dead. Men get a really bad rap here, and rightfully so. But ladies, you're not off the hook. This street runs both directions. It's not a whole lot of 20, 30, 40-year-old men who crowd to their TVs on Monday nights to watch The Bachelor. And it's not a lot of 20, 30, 40, 50-year-old women who crowd to their TVs to watch The Bachelor because it's wholesome. No, there's more there than that. By the time anyone gets just a couple of verses into this section, it ought to become apparent that we're all in trouble here. But catch what Jesus is saying. He's saying the letter of the law says, do not commit adultery. But the heart of the Father says, be perfectly pure. And perfect purity doesn't just begin with actions. It begins with a total heart adjustment. Jump down with me to verse 31. We'll come back to the middle chunk in just a second. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In your notes, if you're you're making notes or in your Bible, if you don't have kind of the cross references there, make a little note. Put two things, Deuteronomy 24 and Matthew 19. Deuteronomy 24 is the Old Testament passage in the law that prescribes how divorce is supposed to work. Matthew 19, 3 through 9 is kind of Jesus' longer teaching on marriage. What Jesus says here is a good summary of that larger teaching. So as we move into that, let me make an observation here. If what we saw with adultery is that our sinful human nature longs to stay there, What we're about to see as it relates to marital challenges is that our sinful nature longs to flee. When it comes to matters of sexual immorality, we long to just linger there. And when it comes to matters of marital challenge, we long to flee. 
Here are the key points of Jesus' teaching on marriage. What's in question here is the grounds for divorce. In Deuteronomy 24, it says that a man could divorce his wife if he found something indecent in her. And that got taken to the extremes, like dinner wasn't good. So I'm going to divorce her. And the Pharisees put all of these rules in place surrounding that so that there were ways out of marriage. And using that understanding of divorce from Deuteronomy 24, Jesus in Matthew 19 makes it clear that God has made a concession to humanity when it comes to divorce. It's not something he commanded. It's not something he prescribed. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve formed the first union, the first marriage, divorce was not a part of the equation. Because what God has in mind for marriage, the vision that God has, the vision that Jesus has for marriage is gloriously grand. It should involve unparalleled intimacy and unyielding commitment. Those are the two things that the Bible teaches about marriage that there's this one flesh union that happens in a marriage that is unlike any other relationship you could ever have. And that the commitment to that one flesh is lifelong and unyielding. And yet, our sinful human nature, the disease of sin, which runs contrary to the will of God, causes us to, to rebel against that. When you read Deuteronomy 24 and you're reading about what constituted grounds for divorce, you know what's never mentioned? What's never mentioned is adultery. Let me tell you why. I already told you, actually. Because if you committed adultery, they were going to kill you. There was no one to divorce in that instance. Your husband or your wife was past tense. That's why in Deuteronomy 24, it doesn't say you can get married on the grounds of, or you can get divorced on the grounds of sexual immorality. That was already taken care of. Matthew says what God lays out in Deuteronomy 24 is a concession due to the hardness of the human heart. That even though God and his, his plan and his picture of marriage created it as such that it was to be unparalleled in its intimacy and unyielding in its commitment that, hey, as humans, you're going to want divorces. And because of that, you've got to give your, your spouse this certificate that shows that you divorced them, more or less so that when somebody brings that into question, they don't stone your spouse, your ex-spouse. They can say, look, no, he, he or she sent me away divorced me for finding some indecency in me and I didn't commit adultery, don't kill me, please. And so that debate rages among the Pharisees. What exactly constitutes the grounds by which a man can give his wife this certificate? What does some indecency mean? And they would lay out all of these different things and Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, wait a second, we're squabbling over what this is supposed to be about, but you've got the wrong idea here. The issue was never what were the grounds by which it was acceptable to divorce someone. The issue was always supposed to be about unyielding commitment. If you divorce 
your wife or your husband on the grounds of anything other than unfaithfulness, then you cause someone else to be in the act of adultery. Let me explain that. There's this one fleshness about marriage. You come together and and two separate individuals become one. And when someone commits adultery, they break that one flesh union and they unite themselves to someone else. That's why Jesus says, there's the grounds for divorce. The unparalleled intimacy has been broken. Their unyielding commitment has strayed away from you. And so now there's grounds to get divorced. But notice what he also says. He doesn't command divorce. You shall get divorced in that instance. He says you can. It's acceptable. Paul also makes it clear later in the New Testament that divorce is acceptable if one spouse abandons the other. And our temptation is to try to figure out the exact parameters around which unfaithfulness is constituted and abandonment is constituted. Well, what if it's emotional? Does it just have to be physical? What if the abandonment is emotional? And there is a place to have those conversations. There's a place and a time and, and, and uh, sometimes those conversations absolutely need to be had. But what Jesus is laying out here is a picture of something different. He's driving at something totally different. He's saying, look, the letter of the law says don't commit adultery, but what I'm telling you is to be perfectly pure. So the question is, what does that look like? It's our nature to stay in the midst of sexual immorality. It's our nature, sinful human nature, to flee in the midst of marital challenges. As a follower of Jesus, those have got to be flipped. As someone who is given their life to Christ, who knows their spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord, who has become pure in heart, like the Beatitudes talk about, then our nature as a follower of Jesus ought to be to flee sexual immorality. Jesus paints this picture very, very vividly. Look at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Look, understand me loud and clear, Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation. He's painting a word picture to try to drive home how serious he is about this topic. The extent of Jesus' desire for purity in our lives extends far, far beyond our external actions. It extends beyond what you look at. It extends beyond the things that your hands do, and it reaches all the way to your heart. According to Oswald Chambers, this new way of approaching life, this new way of, of interacting in this perfectly pure way requires a, uh, what does he say? It requires a violent act of effort, a violent act of will. What Jesus is communicating is that when it comes to matters of sin, specifically the sin of adultery, but all sin in general, we're to take whatever means are necessary to control our fleshly desires. It's not something that comes about easily, but your new nature demands it. The purity of heart that you have, thanks to the presence of the Holy Spirit within you, demands it. So let's be really practical. Men, you may need to ditch the smartphone. You may need to get rid of cable. You may need to cut off the internet at your house. 
You may need to stop walking down the hall to interact with that attractive guy or gal at work. As a follower of Jesus, our heart should long for us to flee from these types of interactions. Alcoholics don't hang out in bars. That's a difficult change for someone that's used to spending a lot of time drinking, but it's one that they understand that they've got to make. But let me kind of chase a rabbit trail a little bit here, especially for the men in the room. You can put all the protections in place that you want. You can try to get every filter for the software on your computer. You can try to get... uh, every accountability partner around you that you possibly can. You can flip the channel every time commercials come on, whatever. Unless your heart is in a place where it longs to flee from these things, you will never ultimately be successful. The software on your computer, being careful with what you watch, having accountability partners, those are all great things, but they work on symptoms. And Jesus has come to eradicate a disease that exists in your heart. And until you've given that over to him fully and he has made you pure in heart like in the Beatitudes, your heart's not going to long to flee from that stuff. It's not going to. You've got to have a heart that longs for the purity that God desires. Second, as a follower of Jesus, we ought to stay in the midst of marital challenges. Look, when the going gets tough in your marriage, the tough ought to get going. And I don't mean going out the door. When the challenges of marriage rear their head, it's time to acknowledge the effects of the disease of sin in your heart and then fight against them. Go ahead and call out the sin that lurks there and tempts you to flee. When questions or difficulties or challenges arise in your marriage, the the, the thing that your heart screams should not be, do I have grounds for divorce? Do I have grounds to leave? Can I get out of this? The question your heart should scream is, can I be unyielding in my commitment here? I don't want to make light of difficult marital challenges. I don't want to make it sound like all you've got to do is just, just you know, give yourself more fully to Jesus and your marriage is going to be perfect because I don't know that that's necessarily the case. But what I do know is that God longs for there to be this unrivaled intimacy and unyielding commitment in your marriage and that everything within us screams for something different. That's because we're sinful and we're human. And there could be situations that exist in your life or in the life of a friend or a family member right now that make that kind of marital commitment very, very challenging. And they're looking for exploring different options or or whatever the case might be. And there are times, the Bible makes it clear, where that is okay. But the vast majority of the time, we run toward divorce far sooner than we should. We run toward divorce for issues that we should be unyielding in our commitment about. The letter of the law says, do not commit adultery. The heart of the Father says, be perfectly pure. I want to end with this illustration. And if you're single here today, I don't want you to feel like this message wasn't for you. We need to do a better job with our single individuals, us married folks. We need to do a better job with single individuals of painting them a very, very grand picture of what marriage is. Because that's what the Bible paints. 
it's pretty commonplace for us to joke as married individuals about being married, like the old ball and chain. Yeah, that sounds appealing. <laughs> that makes every single person want to run off and get married. No, we ought to be painting a picture of just how grand and glorious Jesus' picture of marriage is. That it paints this awesome picture of the gospel and the Trinity. That in the same way that the Trinity are three beings with one essence, that when two people get married, they are two people that have become one flesh. And that just like the Father can never walk out on the Son and the Spirit can never walk out on the Father, so in your marriage, two people can never walk out on one another. I'll never forget the day I got married. And I'm standing there on the altar and and through the back of that church walked my wife and her dad. And my wife was radiant and beautiful and it was one of the most kind of heart-stopping and arresting moments of my entire life. But you want to know who else was radiant that day? Her father. That's how we ought to approach our marriage. The Bible says that at the end of all things, there's going to be this wedding feast in heaven. And I can't control everything about the purity of my wife. Whether it relates to sexual things, I can't control her past, I can't control the things she looks at. The same goes for me. She can't do those things for me. But I want to give my life in our marriage to helping her arrive at that moment at the wedding feast of the Lamb in front of Jesus and her be as pure as possible. I want to walk down that aisle. I know it doesn't work like this, but I want to walk down that aisle with her beaming about how beautiful and pure she looks in that moment. That is the biblical picture of marriage. That we give ourselves to that to our spouses. That, that's, that is what our marriage is for. It's to paint this beautiful picture of the gospel for the world around us and to refine the other person to help them look more and more like Jesus and become more and more perfectly pure so that when you arrive that day at the end, you stand there next to your spouse and they are perfectly pure, covered by the righteousness of Christ, but also perfectly pure because of the work of sanctification that's happened over the course of their lives. The letter of the law says don't commit adultery, but the heart of the Father says be perfectly pure, that your marriage ought to do that. I long for us to be a church that makes a big deal out of marriage, not just for married people. I long for us to be a church that makes a big deal out of marriage for single people. I long for us to be a church that makes a big deal out of being perfectly pure. And that's hard. And that requires the work of the Spirit. And so if you will stand up, this morning, I want to pray over you. Lots of times we end these services and we pray together. I want to pray over you this morning. God, thank you for the work of your Son on the cross. Thank you that there is going to come a day where we will stand before you covered in His righteousness perfectly white, perfectly pure, not stained by the work of sin. Lord, my prayer for each and every one of us in here is that we would arrive at that moment with hearts that are as pure as possible, that we have fully submitted to the work of the Spirit in our lives to eradicating the disease of sin. God, my prayer is that our marriages would be strong. 
My prayer is that in the midst of the difficulty of marriages, God, that as a congregation, each man and each woman in here would dig in their heels and be unyielding in their commitment to their spouse. If that requires counseling, if that requires pastoral intervention, whatever the case might be, God, that we would just dig in and we would stay there firm and unyielding. God, my prayer for us as a church, my prayer for each and every man and woman in this room is that they would flee from matters of sexual immorality. God, that their heart would long to have nothing to do with them, that it wouldn't be a challenge to flip the channel, that it wouldn't be a difficulty to click out of that internet explorer box or whatever the case might be. God, I pray that over every person in here, Lord, that we would be a church that makes a big deal out of the gloriously grand vision of marriage and intimacy that God has in the Bible, Lord, and that we would strive to hold to that unswervingly. God, thank you that Christ has died to pay the price for our sin, that these things are not unforgivable, Lord. God, for each and every one of us in here, would we walk forward in a commitment to allowing him to continually change us, to look more and more like him. God, it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. There will be people up here who would love to pray with you this morning. Uh, Have a great Valentine's Day. We'll see you next week.